1: The number three man in the Confederacy Lee's War Horse, one of the great leaders of the wartime Confederate effort, but after the war, cast out of the Charmed Circle, no monument for him at Gettysburg, at least not for a hundred years. What happened to James Longstreet? Why was he as successful as he was? And what caused him to change his political views after the war? We'll find out when we talk with Elizabeth Varon, author of Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. o w i c z g at e c u dot e d u now back to civil war talk radio
1: oh what are we on oh i'm jerry prokopovich welcome to civil war talk radio Coming to you tonight, as always, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's the first show of 2024 calendar year, the second half of the 23-24 season, the first show uh, in in the new year, so Happy New Year to everyone, and the first uh, show following the 23-24 college football season uh, to put a Civil War gloss on this, I will quote George Custer at Gettysburg. Come on, you Wolverines. Uh, for those who are not paying attention to this greatest of all sports, the, uh, my my alma mater, University of Michigan, won the College Football National Championship this past week. And my current employer, East Carolina, uh, its football team can now say that uh, the Purple and Gold began their most disappointing season in recent memory uh, on their opening day in Ann Arbor, losing to the team that became the national champion. So no disgrace in that. Uh, 15-0, and uh, quite a season. A lot of controversy about Michigan's coach, perhaps, but the young men on the field played admirably. They showed that old-school, run-first style uh football still works, it's not obsolete, and they showed you don't have to recruit all five-star athletes, you can take promising players and develop them into elite ones, and most of all, they showed what happens when everyone puts self and ego and personality second and devotes everything to, uh, as Bo Schembeckler put it, the team, the team, the team. Well, I'm, I will try to suppress my enthusiasm on this topic uh, for the next hour. Uh, it is a new semester here at ECU. Uh, we had a weather day yesterday, a storm here on the East Coast of the United States. But we'll actually get back to classes uh, again tomorrow. Uh, but we're here tonight to talk about civil war, as always. And the civil war is back in the news. Uh, it, it's never far out of it. Since uh, we last talked back in December of 2023 uh, two presidential candidates have mentioned the war recently Uh, one was at least initially unable to bring herself to use the word slavery when asked what caused the civil war Uh, another one said the war could have been avoided with negotiation which got me thinking if only there had been a negotiated compromise say as early as 1820 over an issue like slavery in Missouri. They could have called it the Missouri Compromise. Or if there had been a compromise in 1850, what would be a good name for that? Compromise of 1850. Or 1860, if only there had been a committee of 33 in the House of Representatives, led by Corwin of Ohio, appointed to negotiate a solution. If only the Senate had a compromise proposed by John Crittenden of Kentucky, let's say. Or... Theoretically, if only there had been a peace conference meeting in Washington, D.C. between February 8th and February 27th, 1861, well, as you know, all those things actually did happen. There were lots of attempts to negotiate. The tragedy wasn't a failure to negotiate. It was that the negotiations failed. Uh, We could wish they had succeeded, but that would be no more successful than wishing that politicians today actually knew the first thing about the Civil War and its history before opening their mouths about it, Uh, but that apparently is not happening. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, we will be talking the weeks ahead with people who do know the first thing about Civil War history, and then some. Uh, For example, next week, our guest will be Andrew Lang. We'll talk about his book, A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism. On the 24th of January, Matt Hulbert will return to the show. His new book is called The Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards and His Never-Ending Civil War. I have no idea who John Newman Edwards is, but I know Matt Hulbert, and I know his book will be interesting. Look forward to reading it. Uh, At the end of the month, Jonathan D. Sarna, co-editor of Jews and the Civil War, a reader, will be with us. Uh, Fergus Bordowicz returns in February back to the show with his book, Clan War, U.S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. We'll have Harold Holzer, a longtime friend of the show, and his brand-new book brought forth on this continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. It's not even out yet. haven't read it, but I know Harold's book will be interesting. And uh, we'll just give you one more. Uh, February 21, Scott Hippensteel has a book called Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. I know we have not talked enough in the past 20 years on this show about sedimentary geology. Uh, I don't believe we, we may have talked about it once, but uh, we'll learn more about it from, from Scott on February 21. You can find all these uh, upcoming show names and dates at the website impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps the show up to date. There, I just emailed this year's uh, this season's schedule to him. So if it's not posted today, it'll be there in a day or two. Uh, and while you're there, click on the donation button and uh, start the new year off right by sending lots of money to me here at the Civil War Talk Radio Book and or Bourbon Fund. It is not tax deductible. It's not a charity. It's just a way of showing your appreciation, and helping me pay my dues to the American Historical Association, or whatever I want to do with the money, which could involve more bourbon supplies. Well, uh, tonight we welcome back to the show uh, a guest who was here shockingly long time ago. Uh, her first book, Disunion, talked about the uh, what happens when a word gets into the the political discourse of the country and make something that was once unthinkable uh, actually come about and certainly a a timely book uh, that uh, well but tonight we're going to talk about uh, her new book our guest is Elizabeth R. Varen. Uh, Liz are you there?
3: I am there and uh, delighted to be. And I didn't know Jerry that you're a wolverine. You're positively giddy, uh, as as you well should be. You know, well (laughs) deserved triumph for your for your boys. So congratulations on that. And and I I have to also say I rather enjoyed your arch rebuttal of the idea of a negotiated peace. That was that was well played as well. So uh, I look forward to a good conversation.
1: Well, thank you. I, 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 I. I try. I, I don't intentionally pick on any individual politician. Anyone who says something ignorant about the Civil War gets gets to hear from us. Uh, yeah, so yeah There's radio.
3: plenty uh, of opportunities out there for sure.
1: And uh, unfortunately, that is true. Uh, and and with the the decline in in American political discourse in the last you know ten years or so uh, was oddly the previewed by your, your book on on how the word disunion crept into uh, uh, the, the, the discourse of the 19th century. Uh, I, I hope you're not writing a book about like the fall of American democracy or something now.
3: No but. not not at the moment but I but I do uh, I do like that that uh, study of American political rhetoric I'm a bit of an intellectual historian at heart uh, historian mm-hmm. of ideas that that comes out in all my books I think including the biographies and things that are on, on the face of it about events or people or whatever I, I'm, I'm really drawn to that to the history of ideas it just has a kind of resonance across time that that is, is, is really fascinating
1: well let me start with a, a meta question about sure. your your biography of Longstreet um, it, it, as I read it, it seems to tread the boundary between academic and popular mm-hmm. history. It has footnotes, but not big, thick footnotes. Mm-hmm. It has historiographical discussion, but in the text you identify who you're quoting, uh, the historian Jeffrey Wirt or the historian mm-hmm. Caroline Janey. Uh, if you're writing for me and my colleagues, we know who those people are. You wouldn't mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. Who are you writing this
3: book for? Yeah, that's a great question. So this this really was an attempt on my part and the first I would say, you know, full attempt at, at what we call a crossover book, one that that um is is intended to have a broad audience that includes experts and non-experts and academics and and non-academics and and I had uh, you know, as a goal to have something new and engaging to say and to offer to all of those those various constituencies you know and 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 if you publish with a trade press which Simon and Schuster is that entails mm-hmm. upon you a certain approach a narrative approach i, I Personally, and anyone who's read my my body of work, as it w- as it were, will recognize this instantly to be true. I like making an argument, and and I I was trained in the you know expository mode, thesis proof, thesis proof kind of mm-hmm. kind of mode of writing. That's what I'm most comfortable with. I like to 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 make a you know revisionist intervention or kind of shake up the consensus on a question uh, or, or or the like. Um, mm-hmm and and in a, and in a crossover book with a trade press like Simon and Schuster the the emphasis is on storytelling and on narrative history and the thing i'd say about that uh, you know i i've been moving in that direction there was some narrative history in Appomattox and in my biography of elizabeth van leu and in my my armies of deliverance book but the thing I'll say at the outset is that it's harder to write narrative history than it seems. Just just mm-hmm. like it's harder to describe a battle, you know. To uh, one sure appreciates Bruce Catton after trying to describe a a battle. Um, mm-hmm. These these uh this crossover. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, move is is not is not easy. It 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 sort of poses all kinds of challenges uh, of its own, uh, and so I I really relish the opportunity of taking on those challenges. With in particular, recognizing that biography, which is a which is a genre that lends itself to narrative history and to storytelling, mm-hmm. you have the arc of the person's life offering you your your basic parameters for your your story. Um, that biography can be a very good vehicle for um, grappling with difficult analytical issues, you know, but in a way mm-hmm. that is accessible. So, in and for example, in my biography of Elizabeth Van Lee, the you know white Southern woman, in Richmond base who spied for the Union right there in the heart of the Confederacy, it was. Uh, you know, largely narrative, although a lot of the apparatus of how I had dug up her story was 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 visible. A book I published with Oxford University Press, they let me have the long footnotes and all of those sort of little details and clues about how I knew what I knew. But that book tried to grapple with the topic of Southern white Southern unionism, which is this sort of fascinating, elusive topic. And in the case of Longstreet, the goal here for me was to grapple with the topic of reconstruction, which is, you know, famously you know, difficult to, to, mm-hmm. to understand in part because it proceeds in these different phases in part because it's different, uh, in each state, uh, each of the, 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 seceded states has a somewhat different course, uh, in part because it's so obscured by some very stubborn myths, uh, and, and, uh, uh it has a kind of cast of thousands, um, you know, so I was hoping that Longstreet's story, his personal life story, would be a would be a window into Reconstruction and make some of the key features of Reconstruction intelligible to, uh, you know, an audience again, both of experts and and uh, and and non-experts. It is two thirds
1: of the book is about Longstreet in Reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, and, and in that sense, I guess it's different from previous biographies. Uh, Jeffrey Wirt, for example, comes to mind. But for somebody as well known as James Longstreet, it's surprising how little biographical attention he's received.
3: Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, you're right. There are some terrific books. The Jeffrey workbook, book, also Simon and Schuster with the very same editor I worked with is an excellent mm-hmm. book about Longstreet's military career. And I drew on it and I cited his name when I did to give credit where credit is due. I think that's the right way, the mm-hmm. right way to do things. Um, and, and, you know, pointed out where, where I, I, uh, uh had a, you know, a different, a, a different take, but, um, uh, the William Garrett Piston book, another, another good book about really about his battles over his military reputation. I felt that there was still a lot to say and a lot that is new uh, that one might say in part because, you know, Longstreet spent four years as a civil war general. Um, there endless amounts of ink have been spilled about those four years and particularly about three days in Pennsylvania in July of 1863. <laughs> He spent then nearly forty years as a Republican political operative after the Civil War and and virtually nothing had been written about that those that forty year career. And I felt that that forty year career was, you know, profoundly uh, uh, sort of revealing on some key themes in American history, partisan polarization, race relations, civil war memory, and so on themes that, of course, remain relevant in the present day. Mm-hmm. And I was also a little bit inspired in my approach by, uh, you may recall, some years ago, Elizabeth Brown Pryor published a yes. biography of uh, Robert E. Lee called Reading the Man, you know, which was really looking mm-hmm. at his own words very, very carefully. I felt that for all of the quality of of, of some of the existing Longstreet literature, Uh, his Longstreet's voice didn't come across in any of the existing biographies. And not only that, a picture emerges of him, I think this is true in popular culture as well as in scholarship, a picture comes across of him as this kind of gruff, taciturn, man of few words, Uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of guy, when, if you look at the historical record, this is an unbelievably voluble, prolific man who in the The, post-war period, you know, never misses the opportunity to lean into an interview, to write an essay. The the guy writes a 690 page memoir. You know, I I felt that, and he had a lot I'm going to have
1: to jump in just because we need to take a quick break. Sure. but we're going to talk about some of those words of General Longstreet. Uh, the topic tonight, Longstreet, the Confederate general who defied the South. The author is Elizabeth R. Varon. She's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Elizabeth R. Varin, author of Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South. Uh, Liz, you mentioned in our first segment that there's been a lot written about Longstreet, and especially about his performance at the Battle of Gettysburg. And while I want to turn very, very shortly to... Uh, discussing Longstreet after the war, which is the the focus of your book, I do have to ask: What, having researched him and read these other biographies and his Longstreet's own writings, um, where you come out on on Longstreet's role at Gettysburg?
3: Yeah, so uh, you know, Longstreet was. You know, an effective general earned that reputation as Lee's right-hand man and and as as his uh, you know war horse by by showing skill, in battles the Second Manassas, Fredericksburg, Chickamauga, and so on. Gettysburg, of course, the the story here that I try to tell is of one in which the his post-war political about face and the relitigation of his performance at Gettysburg are connected. The post-war mm-hmm. political about face prompts the relitigation of his of his performance at Gettysburg. So my you know my own take and again drawing on some some good uh, work by scholars like like Wirt is is to say the charge leveled by his post-war opponents, political antagonists, mm-hmm. and then by generations of of uh, scholars offering negative general uh, verdicts on his generalship—the the accusation that that he was willfully disobedient at Gettysburg, that he may have even sabotaged Lee's plans, that he bears primary or maybe even sole responsibility for the loss of the, the battle there. To me, that's just completely unpersuasive. Longstreet, of course, famously has profound doubts about Lee's plan for the second day, and he proposes dislodging from the Confederate's unfavorable position and moving uh, uh, in a big you know, flanking maneuver to the uh, left of the Union position on Cemetery Ridge and, and finding uh, a more favorable high ground that the Confederates can defend on which they can uh, uh, invite battle uh, on terms like, like Fredericksburg calculated to, to furnish them with victory. He's very disappointed when Lee rejects this uh, suggestion he carries through, of course, with the attack of the second day after some delays, um, and, and he'll be excoriated by his critics after the war for those delays who will see in them, again, a kind of sabotage uh, and willful mm-hmm. disobedience. I think the important things to remember is to, is to get a fix on, on what the in the moment you know, reactions and interpretations were in the moment. Longstreet believed those delays were necessary to maximize the chances of of, uh, of success uh, in in uh, on the second day. In the moment, Longstreet uh, emphasized his deference to Lee. Uh, of course, Longstreet uh, uh, entertained Hood's suggestion for a for a, a, a sort of smaller scale uh, turning movement on, on, uh, on the Round Tops there on on the second day, and Longstreet waved off Hood, saying no, no, we must we must defer to Lee and 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 follow Lee's uh, instructions. The third day is a different story. On the third day, Longstreet regarded Lee's plan for what we remember as Pickett's charge to be not only problematic but hopeless. Longstreet really did feel that Pickett's charge didn't have enough men to succeed, so he was quite gloomy about the prospects there. But again, crucially for understanding the connection between the post-war charges uh, and his wartime performance in the immediate aftermath of the battle in the moment neither lee nor the confederate uh, political class nor the high command nor the confederate press nor the southern people nor the rank and file singled out Longstreet as the scapegoat for gettysburg or singled him out for blame there was plenty of blame to go around you could put blame on the shoulders of lee and stewart and ewell and others and 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 you know give credit where credit is due, to meet and to the and to the federals. But Longstreet's reputation as Lee's right-hand man and uh, the second most important soldier in the Army of Virginia is perfectly intact at the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, and that tells us something about. Uh, the post-war origins of those uh, those attacks on his military record. You know, was he ambivalent? Were there missteps? Was there doubt? Did he, as a number of people observed, you know, not fight with the same degree of focus and enthusiasm as at, at us on some other occasions? Sure, but that's a far cry from again disobedience, sabotage, sole responsibility—the kinds of things that are 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 laid at his table down the line.
1: No. In the aftermath of Gettysburg, uh, Longstreet, of course, goes west, fights at Chickamauga. Uh, he fights the East Tennessee campaign against Burnside at Knoxville. And you write about uh, how, how that doesn't go well. Uh, and then he's wounded at the Battle of the Wilderness. What I found interesting reading this part of the book was uh, a story I was less familiar with, the negotiations that he opened with the General Ward. Uh, the federal commander in what we recognize as the, uh, the approaching end of the war. But, but they of course didn't know then that, that is early that in 1864, Longstreet is already looking to the post-war world and considering how can we best get out of this war?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, of- I, that, that, you know, he, he the way I, ex- I I put it in the book is to say he, he was he was bit the ardent Confederate from Manassas to Appomattox and wanted mm-hmm. it the last ditch for the Confederates to win the war and was looking for ways to make that possible. But he begins not so much to lose his faith in the cause as to lose his confidence in the cause. It's eroded by Confederate, Logistical woes. You know, he feels his men, particularly in the East Tennessee, uh, you know, uh, chapter of the war, woefully undersupplied. It, it, the the strategic miscalculations and infighting and tactical missteps and all these things sort of uh, wear at his confidence. His his you know uh, uh, dislike of people like Bragg, his distrust of Jefferson Davis, and he begins really to brood while he's out west about what he sees as the the moral failings of the confederacy and in his mind that that principal moral failing is hubris or a tendency to underestimate your opponents he sees it at work whether the opponents mcclellan or meade or whoever and he begins to brood about that at this moment when he's out west because of course he's out west facing off for the first time against us grant his his old west point buddy and dear friend uh, for whom he has the most immense respect as a military leader and and he begins to feel that Grant will make the Confederates pay for their dysfunction in a way that 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 you know previous union commanders haven't been able to. so he he does begin to contemplate um how to how confederates can can retain some leverage, cut their losses a secure piece that's as favorable to them as possible. And that that, uh, exchange with Ord, some behind the scenes wrangling to suggest that maybe Grant and Lee can meet and and some terms can be struck that will enable the Confederates to preserve some, some, uh, uh, you know, some, some pride and 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 also some elements of of, of slavery perhaps, uh, uh, and to 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 wield some leverage before they've been driven into the ground. This um, exchange with Ord goes nowhere in part because, of course, neither Jefferson Davis or Lincoln are willing to compromise their positions, Davis's insistence on Southern independence and Lincoln's insistence on the restoration of the union and on emancipation. So it's a sort of fleeting moment in which we see, just as you said, Longstreet starting to contemplate the end of the war. You know, that said, it's important to note that, you know, until the last days, he is looking for ways to win and wringing his hands about the failure of the Confederate government and Confederate people to do enough to support the army. He was, he was like Lee, one of these sort of centralizers who was like, in impressment, conscription, yes, yes, you know, whatever it takes to support the army. After
1: the war, uh, I'm going to jump ahead uh, because it really is, the I thought, the critical moment uh, in the book. We, we go ahead two years after the war, the spring of 1867. Longstreet has returned to the South. He is not... Uh, doesn't get an automatic uh, pardon like uh, the rank and file do he has to apply for one and it's not immediately forthcoming uh, but you describe that in the spring of 1867 he's still at this point the number three confederate hero uh, he, he writes a series of letters expressing his willingness to accept the verdict of the war and cooperate with the federal government and it's a turning point. Uh, yeah. This, this is. The, why does he write these letters? What happened?
3: Well, I mean that you know that's the core question of the book, and the the, mm-hmm. the question that it seemed to me hadn't really been sufficiently addressed by previous historians. And, and my conclusion. After you know, reading very deeply in an attempt to answer it, is that you know it wasn't a monocausal answer that 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 mm-hmm. one needs to needs to refer to here, but a, but a, a sort of convergence of factors. And and I'll say a few words about each of them. The the book goes into great detail. So one factor I already alluded to, and that's his friendship with Grant that dated back to the pre-war period in their West Point days, Mexican War service, and so on. Grant, of course, famously offers the Confederates very lenient terms at Appomattox, essentially saying you're free to go home uh, you know, on parole, provided you agree not to raise arms against the Union again and to obey the laws in the places where you you settle. Um, Grant, as I explained in my book, Appomattox, offers these terms not to exonerate the Confederates, but to affect their repentance and atonement and rekindle their their allegiance to the Union. And Grant hopes to you know rekindle their gratitude for that magnanimity. As we know, most Confederates don't receive Grant's terms in the spirit in which they're intended. Uh, uh, many remain defiant, uh, uh, hopeful that somehow the war can still be won, awaiting, as my colleague Carrie Janey put it in her book about Confederacy uh-huh. mobilization, a sort of renewed call to battle. Longstreet, almost singularly among this high echelon of Confederate leaders, accepts Grant's terms and precisely the spirit Grant intended them, that is, as an offer to turn the page, to change, to to, to give the victors their due. And Longstreet's position, as he articulates it in those letters in 1867, is we appeal to the sword, we Confederates, to arbitrate the the, the, the differences between the two sides. And guess what? The Union won. And that means that, that their, their way of life and their new order deserves a chance. So, uh, that friendship with grant is is key. It, it, another context here is the state of affairs in the South. President Johnson's leadership, his excessive leniency to unrepentant confederates, the uh, ex-confederates coming back into power in the southern states and and uh, and pushing the free people into into the, uh, you know, subordinate uh, status, and so on. the The chaos in the post-war South worried. Uh, Longstreet, um, he he didn't have much respect for Johnson who he saw as a vain, volatile, reckless politician, the antithesis of Grant, the noble war hero. So he had to decide who to trust. And in that, those calculations about who to trust, what was foremost in Longstreet's mind was his desire for peace and serenity for his own family and for his people as he defined them at the time. And at the time he writes these letters by his people, he means his fellow white Southerners. Longstreet's family had had a brutal war by, by any standards of, of, uh, of sort of nice. loss. In, in, in the winter of 1862, he and his wife had lost three young children to scarlet fever in the space of a week. Uh, you know, this, this tragedy had changed his personality by all accounts. And in one of those letters that he publishes, he says something very revealing of his mindset. He says, and I'm sort of paraphrasing him here, that the Confederacy is dead matter, that the funeral rites for the Confederacy need to be performed, and that Confederates need to bury in the same grave as the Confederacy itself, the agony of their grief, as he puts it. And as I explain in the book, at that moment with words like those, he's channeling the grief and the trauma of his own personal loss. And he's proposing that the only way to soldier on is to bury the dead and the past and to turn the page and, and move on. So that's a second uh, motivator. And then I'll very briefly... Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, set up any follow-up questions, I'll say the third factor, and and this is the thing that surprised me the most that that has been most overlooked is the is New Orleans the fact that he mm-hmm. chooses to settle in this city of all cities, a city that has its own fascinating political culture, uh, including the presence of an Afro Creole. Uh, A class of black leaders, many of them with uh, mixed race men of French and Spanish lineage um, joined by some some, uh, sort of uh, immigrants like PBS Pinchback from elsewhere in the South who settled in New Orleans. And these are men who were union veterans in the Louisiana USCT, some of them were commissioned officers in the USCT, a very impressive group of men, a very politically assertive group of men, and they're kind of uniquely positioned to challenge some of Longstreet's views on race, which which they do. But But the last thing I'll say here is that in a way, the most important factor in understanding Longstreet's both his decision and his political evolution is the ferocity of the backlash against those letters. Uh, uh, they are greeted with wrath and scorn by ex-Confederates, members of the Southern Democratic Party. So, part and
1: partly, he his response is is to to double down. He's his
3: response to. is to double down, and in that respect, I am really going against p- previous interpretations. The uh, essentially his previous biographers have suggested that Longstreet was in over his head, that he didn't mean to to take any kind of radical position, that his essential purposes were, were uh, conservative, as it was defined at the time, to preserve as much of the old order as possible, but that he misrepresented his own true intentions. Well, that's not, again, what the historical record shows. The historical record shows a fervent backlash in which he's accused of being a race traitor, a Judas, a Benedict Arnold, Lucifer, you know, the Confederate -confederate ex-Confederate press says, ah, it would have been better if you died of your wounds in the wilderness and we wouldn't have had to see you, you know, betray your, your country and so on. And in response to that backlash, Longstreet doubles down. There would have been easy to retreat. There were many off ramps away from the Republican Party uh, in in the Reconstruction South, but he doubles down and plays a very very important role in in Republican party life as an office holder and a political operative. And he uses his power within the party to promote, black voting and black office holding, uh, and black militarization. And all of these things, of course, just further anger, uh, his Confederate detractors. Uh, one key element of this dynamic is that while ex-Confederates are excoriating him as a race traitor, the Republicans are welcoming him with open arms. Northerners saying, you know, yes, you were, you were a great Civil War general, James Longstreet. The, 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 you know, uh, uh, more they burnished his military reputation, the more important a get he was as in terms of a, of a convert who could symbolize the rekindling of the allegiance of the former, you know, uh, rebels, the errant brethren.
1: Now, your, your mention of the Republicans, though, brings up that they themselves will will splinter quite dramatically in New Orleans. And that's a complex story we'll have to take a break uh, to, to get ready to grasp. Uh, When we come back, we are talking tonight with Elizabeth R. Varin, author of Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War
0: Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
3: self-improvement career advice and a variety of other topics check us out today you're sure to find something of interest voice america variety talk on today's hot topics
2: voice america is on linkedin connect with us today have you become a
0: member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Elizabeth R. Varin, author of Longstreet, the Confederate General who Defied the South. We've been talking about Longstreet's post-war career in which, uh, after being widely regarded as one of the great heroes of the Confederacy, with his letters of 1867, uh, he begins a path of moving toward the values of uh, the Republican Party of that era of, uh, supporting black voting in the South and uh, the supporting cooperation with the federal government for which, uh, as you pointed out, he was excoriated by many ex-Confederates. Uh, and you also pointed out being in, in uh, New Orleans was critical because of the, the large, uh, comparatively large population of, of politically active and aware uh, afro Franco, Hispanic, uh, Creole uh, people. New Orleans, though, uh, well, well, Longstreet takes on all kinds of roles there. Grant appoints him the customs collector, but he's also on the school board. He's the adjutant general of the state, commands the state's militia. Uh, He's a major figure in, in this period. And it's so complex. I, I don't even think we can begin to unravel it in the next 15 minutes. But what? What's the what, what goes on in New Orleans?
3: The, yeah, uh, so it's so as say, it. it's so complicated. So essentially mm-hmm. Congress with its re- famous Reconstruction <clears throat> Acts of March 1867 invalidates the Johnsonian state governments which had fallen into the hands of ex-Confederates and tries to set up new governing coalitions for the southern states. Governing coalitions that uh, are composed of men who are fully uh, loyal to, to the Union. So those co- coalitions include some northern transplants to the south, generally Union soldiers who had settled there. It includes newly enfranchised African-American men in the south. And it includes some white Southern Republicans, people like Longstreet, white Southerners who are willing to give the Republican Party a chance. Some of these people had been unionists during the war, but there were some ex-Confederates in their ranks too. Longstreet stood out as the most prominent ex-Confederate to make this choice, to give the Republicans a chance. So unfortunately, although it attempts to do many great things, this um uh, experiment in interracial democracy uh, efforts, which makes efforts legislatively to modernize the South, provide social services, open up the franchise, provide a social safety net, integrate, uh, you know, the schools, or provide at the at the very least uh, uh, schooling, uh, public schooling for whites and 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 blacks um, uh, alike. Um, this experiment, you know, runs aground in the face of massive opposition from uh, unreconstructed white Southern Democrats and a, and a massive terrorist campaign perpetrated by groups like the Klan and the Knights of the White Camellia and other such groups. As you implied in your, your comment right before the commercial break there, the, the coalition had another problem, and that's that the very deep fault lines within it there was a lot of factionalism mm-hmm. among the republicans because those elements that i described you know weren't on on the same page the the african americans wanted full citizenship full inclusion in the body politic uh, full recognition uh, as 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 citizens many of the whites in the coalition especially the southern whites weren't terribly enthusiastic about or committed to that kind of racial equality they they uh, were more interested in economic profit or economic modernization they had other motivations for for joining the coalition so um there are, there are fault the fault lines are something that the, the propaganda and fraud and social pressure and intimidation and violence perpetrated by the the the, the uh, Democrats, was, was trying to exploit in essence. So what you have to make a long story short is an embattled coalition government, Republican coalition government in, in, in Louisiana based in New Orleans that is under siege from opponents who deny its legitimacy and its right to exist. There are a series of street battles in New Orleans in which Longstreet leading an interracial state militia defends this government against white supremacist attacks. And they culminate on September 14th, 1874, less than 10 years after the end of the war in a, in a, in a big pitched battle in the streets of New Orleans Uh, In in which the white supremacist uh, group, uh, the so-called white leagues um, that were prominent in Louisiana, mount essentially a coup attempt. They try to overthrow the duly elected Republican state government. Longstreet and his militiamen defend it, but defend it in vain. They're overwhelmed by white leaguers. This is one of these Civil War stories you just couldn't make up even if you tried. The Mm. drama, the unlikeliness of it, Longstreet is literally facing men who are attacking his militia, Uh, those men attacking the militia, unleashing the rebel yell, many of the men attacking the militia had been men who served under Longstreet when Longstreet was a Confederate general. So he's fighting against his former Uh, sort of comrades in arms. Uh, and, And the upshot, again, to make a long story short, is the coup briefly succeeds. Federal troops eventually are called in to restore the Republican government, but it's on very shaky ground thereafter. And Reconstruction has begun to unravel in the face of all of this opposition. After Reconstruction does unravel, Rutherford B. Hayes removes the last federal troops from the south and the southern states fall. Um, firmly back into the hands of former Confederates, um, Longstreet retreats somewhat from this position he had taken by, he was effectively a rattle, radical Republican by the time he leaves New Orleans, but he retreats He's pretty battered psychologically and physically, too, by that that 1874 battle. And he heads back to Georgia where he has kinfolk and tries to turn the page yet again. Uh, 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 The key thing here to square the circle uh, uh, um, and get us back to a theme I started with is that Mm -hmm. the attacks on Longstreet's wartime record coincide not not coincidentally with his peak of influence in the New Orleans Republican Party Jubal early William Nelson Pendleton these these uh, uh, men who considered themselves Lee's you know uh, Lee's you know defenders and acolytes they um, attacked Longstreet in 1872 1873 uh, accusing him again of having uh, been defiant at Gettysburg, having disobeyed a, a sunrise order that Lee had allegedly given for an attack on, on, on July 2nd. There was no such order, but needless to say, these men, um, you know, threw whatever they could uh, out there to try to undermine Longstreet's military reputation. And he focuses in the last chapter of his life on on trying to defend it.
1: You know, he, he writes, of course, he writes his, his memoirs. He contributes to the Battles and Leaders series. Uh, and one, he refers to Lee having uh, said after Gettysburg that it was his fault that he should have listened to Longstreet. Uh, Longstreet claims there's such a there's there's a letter, but no one's ever seen it. Was there such a letter?
3: I I don't think so. I think that I think that Longstreet you know, was, was, uh, had been used up until that point at Gettysburg to, to Lee, um, uh, you know, taking his advice very seriously. I think he was very hurt that Lee opted not to. I think Longstreet for a long time, even after the war, even though Lee disapproved of Longstreet's 1867 letters and told him so and 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 uh, 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 lee was no fan of the presidency of u.s grant or of reconstruction so the two men had parted ways politically even before lee died but i think longstreet nonetheless thought of himself as a as a defender of lee as a friend of lee you know, well into the post-war period, but the attacks and, as Longstreet saw it, the lies of his opponents of the Earlies mm-hmm. and the Pendletons, the claims like the claim of a sunrise order, sort of um, just uh, really uh, embittered Longstreet, uh, and and he at times kind of lashed out against uh, against his his uh, uh, his, his opponents um, in 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 that spirit. But by the time he writes his memoir, again, he's 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 so. Frustrated with the way he's been portrayed, and so eager to look wherever he can uh, for for uh, you know a, a defense. Um, mm-hmm. By the time of his memoir, we can see this this rising tide of, of his own resentment against the likes of early. Uh, in the way that the mm-hmm. memoir criticizes Lee, not not for having uh, you know. Uh, uh, not only for having disregarded Longstreet's sort of tactical suggestions, mm-hmm. but for having lost his cool, uh, as Longstreet puts it. Lee was off his balance at Gettysburg. He'd lost his equipoise poise. His bloodlust was up. Oh. These are the kind of things Longstreet says in 1896. And, and he couples them to the, you know, unbelievable Incredulous anger again of ex Confederates, he couples them with praise for Grant. In his memoir, he compares Lee and Grant as generals, and he says Grant was the superior general because Grant didn't lose his cool. Grant always possessed mm-hmm. a level head, uh, as Longstreet puts it, and Grant had a kind of moral courage, the courage to change. Uh, that that uh, Lee didn't have. So so Lee Longstreet's relationship with Lee is uh, is is uh, is is very very complicated, and it sort of deteriorates. Kind of this is a little paradoxical to say, but it deteriorates after Lee's death, which mm-hmm. Longstreet really begins to to uh, you know to feel that Lee's Lee's followers, Lee's chosen representatives and acolytes are just not fighting
1: fair. There's. A lot more in this book, Uh, Longstreet in Georgia becomes uh, U.S. Marshal, and uh, you point out that this period in in Longstreet's life is largely overlooked. Readers, you'll have to get the book to find out what happens uh, in that important period. But uh, I want to touch on just one more thing, uh, two things very quickly. One is that Longstreet remarries in 1897, and uh, his second wife, Helen Dortch, Uh, Longstreet. Uh, She deserves a book of her own. What a story.
3: does she ever. Yeah, she's remarkably, marries a woman 42 years his junior in 1897, 76. She's 34. She is a kind of political maverick in her own right, a Georgia journalist. She takes it upon herself to defend his military reputation. And she helps him refashion himself in the last third of his life. Uh, as a reunionist, a reconciliationist, someone he sort of presents himself to the public as someone who could see long before anyone else could that each side was going to have to make concessions if there was going to be a reunion. A champion of the of the 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 restoration of the bonds between North and South, and he refashions himself a statesman, and he's able to do this because, just as you said. His position as custom surveyor in New Orleans isn't his last Republican patronage job. He's a U.S. Marshal in Georgia, he's a postmaster, he is railroad commissioner, and remarkably, he is an an ambassador to to the Ottoman Empire, to to Turkey, representing the United States, you know, less than 15 years after he waged war against it. Now, to me, all of this was so fascinating and important. And again, here's a, a place where I break from the other biographers of Longstreet. I, I, the picture of him overwhelmingly again in the literature is of an, uh, an inept, bungling politician. Well, you know, a man who keeps get, uh, getting appointed to one after another patronage position, you know, must be doing something right, you know, politically. Mm-hmm. I think he was quite politically savvy. I think most, most, uh, very eminent generals are and have to be that that kind of comes with the territory but to a surprising degree and with the help of this second wife he does manage to claw back some of his lost popularity among white southerners to 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 reinforce this image in the minds of northerners that he's a great national hero and a statesman and by the time of his death he has he has, um, to some degree, rehabilitated himself. Now, there remain those lost cause, you know, mavens, particularly Virginians, who are just never going to let up in their criticism mm-hmm. of his of his war record. And there remain uh, whites in New Orleans who, as they, you know, celebrate that coup attempt in their annual celebrations, uh, are, are going to excoriate him anew for his his radicalism and so on. But to a surprising degree um he is able to to uh to 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 kind of reinvent himself as a statesman by the time of his death in nineteen
1: oh four. So here's an impossible question for which you have only sixty seconds to answer. With all of this, how do we remember him today?
3: So I we? I I think that um that that he is a a number of things. He is the sort of exception that proves the rule. That is to say, as we talked about lost cause memorialization and monuments and so on, many a commentator in the past five to 10 years has said, you know, why were there no monuments to James Longstreet as there were to Stonewall Jackson and Lee and so on? Well, the answer, as I've just explained, is that when he turned uh, away from uh, the the lost cause uh, uh, sort of political agenda, he uh, was no longer useful as a symbol of the of the Confederacy and of and of and of white supremacy and 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 so in a sense his the absence of statues to Longstreet underscores the political agenda that the statues of 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 uh, Jackson and Lee statues put up uh you know well into the 20th century were, were, were that political uh, you know agenda that they were meant to to embody his life is a is an object lesson in the importance of accountability. After that New Orleans coup, the perpetrators walked I, away, you know, unpunished. Uh, but then finally, I think ultimately what I want people to take away is that it's always worth it to take a new look at a sort of venerable old topic using the, the sensibilities and the tools of modern scholarship.
1: That is a great point And listeners, you can do that. When you read Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South, it's written by our guest tonight, Elizabeth R. Varon. Liz, thank you so much for coming back to Civil War Talk Radio.
3: My pleasure. I look forward to future visits. I'm starting to work on a biography of Clara Barton, and I hope to tell you all about that. You know, well, we'll look,
1: for, look forward to that. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.